This is Yelena with 23T, a podcast that dedicates itself to learning about the real lives of up-and-coming artists who are pursuing their passion as their career. This platform creates a community of creatives who share their stories to serve other arts workers. If you're striving towards your dreams, you're bound to learn something from this podcast on how to achieve them by creating your own opportunity. Feeling really overwhelmed. and felt like I was kind of in a race where I can find myself like find what I want to do find if I like what I do maybe there will be five people at one of my shows but maybe one of those five people needs specifically what I bring to the table like people feel safe to grow here and they don't feel judged I'm okay with knowing that it's like a steady incline towards where we're trying to get to you're broadening your own human experiences by just empathizing and connecting with people I just have this thing where I need to get up and I need to do it just because you're a really great artist doesn't mean that you'll be successful in the industry because I've had the cell phone shut off a couple times I've had my internet shut off I've had like an apple for dinner like if we can help people mm-hmm. and it's just like the idea of like just being kind if no one's opening a door do exactly what you've done with this podcast and go go make your own door hello welcome back to 23t welcome back to the interview portion of the podcast which it has been for are you okay yeah. Okay, I just looked at you and I was like, something went wrong already. Um, no, I was dreaming already. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been the interview portion of the podcast for weeks now. I did put on Instagram, if you follow me on Instagram, the 23T account, that I was working on. I used to do this this thing called Me Mondays, where it was like Monday episodes were about the things that I was working on, my projects, et cetera, et cetera. At the time when I first started, I was doing a lot of writing and I just put out a short film. I think I mentioned to you nothing that I'm like majorly proud of or would show you, but it was my first project and I was proud of doing that. So I would do like these updates and then the interviews sort of just took over and it became the most important part. So now it's just been like Wednesday interviews. Um, We are in Toronto. I also do them in Waterloo, Henry. But we are in Toronto. The Christmas tree is up. This was actually something that I was going to ask you. I purposely lit the Christmas tree because I feel like you don't like Christmas or something because I keep seeing you posting about how upset you are that people are so festive already. Oh, wow. Well, to be fair, <laughs> like 40 Santas came into a bar that I was at. So yeah. it was a lot. Mm-hmm. And they were not there for Christmas cheer. They were there to do shots and yell. Yeah. A lot of men. A lot of men yelling. So did you do you like Christmas? Uh, I mean, technically I'm Jewish. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. My mother's side of the family is Jewish, although I was never brought up practicing. And I'm a pretty staunch anti-capitalist, and I think Christmas is pretty much just about capitalism now. Mm-hmm. So, But I don't want to be a sourpuss, so if people want to <laughs> have a Christmas dinner or give me a present, or if I feel like giving someone a present, then I'll get into it. Mm-hmm. But I don't decorate. Okay. I purposely lit it, and then I was going to ask you if I should unplug it if you were, like, super emotional towards it. No, it's fair. It's a nice, tasteful tree. Okay. Good. So Mm. the the tree is staying lit, then. Okay. For this episode. Yeah, so you know it's December, then. Actually, we put up up the tree in November. Jill put up the tree in November. But it's December, which is crazy. I was just, like, reminiscing back with Henry about last year this time. It's not a happy time for me. Um, but yeah, we're going to celebrate the one year anniversary of the podcast soon. I feel like I'm in a better place, but I also feel like it's not vastly different from where I was last year. Cheers to that. Yeah. Okay. Cheers. To to the future. (laughs) 
It's good to think about the past, but don't let it domineer the domineer dominate the present. Yeah. I also okay. Hopefully, no one. Well, I mean, this is now. I feel different. Hmm. I want to say what I was gonna say, but then I was like, if anyone that I work with listens to this, but then I want them to listen to it because I want everyone to listen to the podcast. I'm just gonna say it. This morning, I found out that I'm moving out March first rather than May first, which I haven't told a lot of people. And my plan is not just to like move out of my apartment, but to move totally out of the city. I just feel like Toronto has run its course for me in a lot of different ways in terms of like money. I think a lot of people are feeling that way. I, I, I think so too. I think like I'm young, I'm 24. So I'm, okay. Don't rub it in. Okay. I don't even know. How old are you, Henry? Will we share? Believe it or not, I'm 500 years old. Wow. Yeah. It's been a long road. <laughs> I are came you? up with the Borgias. <laughs> You know, uh, Cesar Borgia. We were close until we weren't. Anyway. So you're not going to tell me? I just did. <laughs> okay, fine. I will leave it at that. You said you were open to talk about anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't say I was going to give you the whole truth. <laughs> I would give you my truth. That is fair enough. Um, so I've lived in only a few different cities. Like, think when I think about it, I'm like, okay. So I grew up in, okay, I wasn't born in Canada, but that doesn't count as a child. Me neither. Where were you born? I was born in England. I think I knew that. How and long neither of us have our native accents. No. Well, no. I moved here when I was four. Okay. I moved here when I was eight to rural British Columbia, mm -hmm. and I had the accent bullied out of me fairly quickly. Bullied out of you? Oh, yeah. Who would make fun of an English accent? Young Children. boys who live in Children. a town of 800 people in there the Rocky Mountains. Fair enough. Those people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I moved here when I was four, lived in KW until I was 19, moved to Toronto. Then I moved to Seoul. Then I moved back to Toronto. But really, I've lived in Toronto for the last five years. I'm just like, I need to not stay complacent. And I'm definitely someone who needs to keep moving. I was like, what better city to live in when you're like in your 20s in Canada than Montreal that you can afford? True, if you can find work. Yeah, I have a couple friends who are Anglophone and they have work. Not like I'm not going to say it's like luxurious. Like I'm going to go to Montreal and like probably do the same thing I'm doing here. Work in a kitchen, work in a bar where they'll take me. Sure. There's still a good thriving arts and music scene there. That's what I was thinking. I was like, it's definitely a lot of place that I can do or a place that I can do a lot of podcasting. So many artists there. It's very artsy. It's very, I feel like it's a nice community there. Mm hmm. And uh, that's basically what the goal is. If I move there in March, I don't know for sure. We'll see where I'm at in terms of money and saving and if I do find a job because I'd like to start working right away for security. But yeah. You're going to work security? You're kind of small. Yeah. Well, I was thinking like I have three months to put on quite a bit of weight. Okay. Yeah. Or strap on. If you got a gun, then that, uh, no one's going to mess with you. No. Yeah. Get a couple face tattoos. That's threatening. Yes. That's threatening. I enough. could see you with a face tattoo. Could you? Yeah. Hmm. Like maybe a flame? just on your eyelids. So when you close your eyes, it says like, "Don't mess." Or, or like, something. I, like I'm dead. Like something super dark. I'm dead. You're dead. You're dead. Oh, you're dead. That would be yeah. better. Yeah. When you see her close her eyes, that's when you know. You're yeah. Dead. You're dead. Actually, speaking of eyelids, I have to bring this up because this is a recent thing. So I have very oily skin, and that does not. Uh, exclude my eyelids so my eyelids are very oily and I now work in a kitchen 
where I'm like sweating, you know, it's hot. So I feel like my eyelids get extra oily. So I've been having this problem. I had this problem like get well as well. I'd, like my eyes would always water and then people thought I was crying and I'm like, I'm a Pisces, but it's not that. And it would get into my eyes and it would like fucking burn, like burn. And now with this new job, there's no real eye wash station. So like my hands are dirty when it happens. So then I have to like close my eyes. They're burning, wash my hands for a good five minutes and then clean my eyes. And I'm like, okay, this is like every day. What should I do about it? So I went to the pharmacy and I bought, this is a real thing. I also Googled it and watched this whole YouTube tutorial about how to properly clean your eyelids and people that overproduce oil. So anyways, I got these eyelid wipes specifically for your eyes. And I also got a foam. kind of looks like a little shaving cream thing. And uh, it's meant to uh, kill all the bacteria on there. So you have to shave your eyelids now? So, yes. So now I just thought about doing that and just get rid of them all together. Mm. Botox injections also. To never close them? Well, apparently you can get Botox injections to close the pores... I think it's a temporary fix, but it stops you from sweating. Mm. I also dealt with this as a teenager, and that was the advice given to me was Botox injections in my armpits, which I I passed. You you like sweat so much that you went to the doctor about it? Is that what you said? Yeah, I've always been like uh, I don't know. I have a fast metabolism, I guess. And at the time, I was doing I was racing triathlons. And I thought maybe it was just a phase, but yeah, I was like sweating a lot, like most teen boys do. Mm-hmm. But that seemed like a weird suggestion. It wasn't. Years later, a naturopath told me that sweating is fine, and your body need if your body's doing that, it's a okay. You yeah. don't need to get what is Botox even? It's like fat cells. I don't know. I don't know what it anyway, is. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, still haven't done it, but I've heard of people who do it. Yeah. I uh, I like your hair, by the way. You got ombre done, right? Professionally for the first time. Uh, I got balayage. Oh, balayage. Uh, my me. wonderful friend Margot at um, Hair by Home at Dovercourt and College individually painted some of my hair <laughs> to make it look like a natural um, sun-kissed blondie look. Yeah. Yes, very subtle. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I told her I was going for 90s Brad Pitt. Yeah. If anyone walks in here, by the way, feel free to say hello. Don't feel awkward that you have to just oh, ignore make them. It's super awkward. Or you could do that, yeah. Okay, just took a sip of my tea. If anyone wants to know what um, Henry picked, it was Cactus Fig. Indeed. He, he did think about Cream Earl Grey, but we ended up at Cactus Fig. So we were talking about whatever that says about him is up to your own interpretation. Um, but True. But that is, that is what he chose. I'm going to try the tea... Despite it being in a Virgo mug. Uh, Henry is also a, a Scorpio. Drinking out of a Virgo mug. I'm so sorry. Okay. It's fine. So do you want to... We're in We're in it now. We're already 10 minutes in. We're going. 10 minutes in. You haven't introduced me yet. I, exactly. So I was just about to let you introduce yourself. Do you want to introduce yourself? My name's Henri Fabergé. <laughs> I go by Henry. And... Um, and I'm an artist and a community agitator, I suppose. Okay. Is that your... Okay, I was asking before as well, because on your website, your name is with an I. In, on your IDs and legal documents, it's with a Y. Oh, wow. You've been looking at my legal documents? I'm asking you. Okay. Well, <laughs> if I show you the receipts, yes, my name's Henry. My 
performance name is Henri Fabergé. Mm. So please don't call me Henri in the social <laughs> scenario. It makes me feel awkward <laughs> and a bit too arrogant and grandiose. Is that your real last name as well? No comment. Okay. So we don't know your age. We don't know your last name. We do know you're a Scorpio, allegedly. Um, <laughs> so I was on your website before you came in. And I was looking through a lot of it. We have had one conversation about all the things that you've been doing. It was, I will admit, you're smarter than me. You've been in it for longer. So I had a hard time grasping everything that you were talking about. But the website did break it down for me a lot. So you... It's an attempt. It's not a great website, but... It, I, it's not bad. It's great. Well, it's good for me. Simple person. So it helped. Hfab.art for anyone who's <laughs> listening. Um... So this, you've created this character that's lived for many years now because mm -hmm. I, I go back and early, maybe not early 2000s, before, like, is it before 2010 uh, or after 2010? No, before that it was a band. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a different band and I was writing some songs that were very much from a uh, satirical perspective on the male experience and examining my own privilege and it didn't really fit in with that band so I started performing as Henri and then some friends joined in and it became Henri Fabergé and the Adorables mm -hmm. and it was a, at the time a take on the sprawling indie collectives like Broken Social Scene and other bands in my scene that were sort of over inundated with lots of men, lots of guitars. The Adorables was sort of a wild satirical take on that, I guess. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much 50-50 uh, gender-wise, just trying to get more um, of my female friends in positions where it wasn't, I don't know what I'm saying. I was just sick of like the male-dominated music scene. <laughs> And but then on the flip side, it was very much about this arrogant, egotistical character, Henri Fabergé. All the songs were about him. Okay. He was this sort of um, uh, overimposing male figure in charge of this sprawling group. Mm -hmm. So even then, before you started to do your episodic series with Henri, mm -hmm. you had the Dorbles, but he was still a character it was already the yes he was, was already, already the developed. character of Henri Fabergé mm -hmm. and from there we're gonna move on to the next chapter go for it you can we move were offered you like. um a residency of sorts at Hart House at U of T to do a monthly music show um for seven months but instead we fashioned this improvised punk rock opera featuring my music featuring short films that we were making but embodying the spirit of this sprawling collective of improvisers and actors and roommates and friends and musicians um, creating the a chapter of the world of Henri Fabergé so the first series was his high school years mm. I suppose and um, we had great fun sprawling these stories over seven months and some of the stories were ones that we desperately wanted to tell and others were circumstantial that 
such and such person stuck around and became a recurring character. Some people couldn't commit, so they had other opportunities and they would come back for a future series. But it was this sort of stable of actors who were coming back and playing different characters, but creating their own archetypes, I guess. So on the website, the way that it's organized is faint of heart. So this is when I, when I say like faint of heart, St. Creskins, Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say this one. Heligoland. Heligoland. Yeah. Heligoland. F- Follies? Follies? Yeah. Is that the right word? Yeah. Follies. Follies. Follies is uh, sound effects. Okay. Uh, what do, you, what do you know what the next one I'm going to say? Entract? Entract, yeah. Entract. Oh, there's one missing. So Faint of Heart is uh, an Edwardian naval academy in this sort of fake Britain. Um, training the brightest minds to be the future leaders of the military. Okay. Um, St. Creskins is their Christmas-like holiday. Going back to Christmas. Uh, happy St. Creskins, by the way. It's, yes, I saw you post on Instagram as well. It, it is the season. <laughs> and Holy Gland Follies was Fabergé's gap year. He was out exploring the world. He gets caught up in a matriarch-led commune cult type situation on the island of Heligoland off the coast of Germany in the North Sea Mm -hmm. in the year 1820 um, Napoleon uh, Bonaparte also features prominently in the story and from that series we also had a winter holiday type show called Soul Sacrifice um, celebrating the winter solstice and the gifts from mother. Uh, Entourage was a web series which was cut short by our residency being canceled. Um, But from that, we continued with a short film that we had started, The Mortal Decree, which we finished two days ago. Okay, yes. It was a long road. We (laughs) just finished the coloring and self-producing a high concept low budget film is is a lot Mm -hmm. and you did that for over 10 years i think you told me no but it was many years okay we shot some then two years later we shot some more and then two Mm -hmm. years later we shot some more um my life was a bit derailed by an attempt to open a big uh venue kind of space so when that did not pan out, I returned to this project and finished that film as our proof of concept to pursue funding for a streaming series or a feature film, mm-hmm. which is what we're currently working on right now. Mm-hmm. How does a, you said that your residency got canceled. How does a residency get canceled? Uh, the house band was smoking weed out front of the venue. This is pre-legalization. Mm-hmm. The very aggro security guard was not having any of it Mm -hmm. despite my very intelligent but um (laughs) confrontational friends explaining to him that he smoked cigarettes and that's also a drug so what's the big deal Mm -hmm. but i think also they were just done with us anyway and not because we were you know we were pretty respectful but we were bringing out even from episode one about 200 people. It was packed every month. Um, 
we drank their bar dry halfway through the show. After the first series, they invited us back to do a second series, but they asked us to stop advertising because they didn't want as many people to come. Oh my gosh. Okay. Which we sort of did, but people knew about it anyway. And so we were very fortunate to have a dedicated audience that was really into the story and was with us. You know, they were along for the ride and it was kind of not up to us. They just kept coming and kept supporting these big visual spectacle shows where we were doing crazier and crazier things. And Mm -hmm. the cast for any given episode might've had 30 or 40 people in it. So Mm -hmm. it was pretty wild. And That's a huge cast. Yeah. Yeah. And by the third season, we said yes, but we kind of just took their piddly. I think they gave us like $2,000 for the whole series. And we were funding the rest of I was funding the rest of it from my day jobs. And so the third season, we were kind of just phoning it in and doing these little variety shows. And um, I think we were kind of done, too. So mm-hmm. it was fine. We just moved on and... A lot of the people in our uh, collective were also getting opportunities and becoming successful in their own rights as actors and developing their own web series and their bands were taking off. And yeah, I think everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of want to go back and then we can go move forward, but I kind of want to go back because I just want to learn more about your like upbringing, I guess. Because you talk about like, you tackle like certain topics about like gender and sexuality and things like that. So as a kid, were you like always a very creative person? Were you sort of like a, like a drama kid or like, where did you fit in? I guess if you had to, if we had to fit you in just like talking about it. My friends and I described ourselves as art freaks. (laughs) Um, we are super into grunge. This is like the nineties. Mm-hmm. That'll give you like some indication of how old I am. <laughs> and we were in a small town, so it was kind of like pretty siloed. There were the jocks, there were the kind of rednecky skids. Um, and we were just like nerdy music theater people. So I studied trumpet in the more traditional concert band but then started my own sort of punk grungy band when I was 13, I think. And then I was very interested in acting, but I was super hyper and did not have a great attention span. So my acting experience was kind of here and there. Like I was in some school productions, I was Charlie and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory pretty young, but I was told that I was not their first choice and that I needed to calm down and focus if I wanted to take on this role. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I used to, I mean, I, it was hard to really connect with like the cool party scene in a small town. I was just with my like nerd friends hanging out in the drama room at lunch listening to the Violent Femmes, dressing like pretty weird even for that group. Like I was told several times by my parents not to wear, you know, like women's culottes to school. And so I would just change in the bush on the way. (laughs) And I had these like British, like very British Marks and Spencer's pajama set, which I sewed all of these patches on to make it look like a military uniform. Like I was just trying to like 
figure my own self out. I wasn't really doing it for anyone but myself. Mm. And I liked Kurt Cobain and other, you know, weird, um, I mean, it's very British too. Like the Brits have a tendency to dress in drag and, you know, Monty Python wearing like just strange women's outfits. So it was kind of an exploration of what I could pull together shopping at the local thrift store, which became like my haven for finding just weird shit that no one else would wear. Would you say that it's still an important thing to do, to you to express yourself like with your fashion and like, for example, like with your hair, like you're always changing your hair, you're always changing your like facial hair. You have like, you dress mm. like you care, you know, like you, you have intention. If I were to. Sure. Yeah. I definitely have you. intention. Mm-hmm. I do find more and more that I'm trying to dress in my version of like basic camouflage. So even today I'm wearing like what I consider to be like a basic, like nondescript outfit, but I am still like a bit extra, I guess. Um, And then when I do dress up, especially as Henri Fabergé, I have some pretty outlandish clothing because I'm trying to emulate this character who was born of um, aristocratic privilege. And so kind of dressing down from there is fun, but it's, assuming this level of privilege and luxury but in my own life I don't know I guess I'm dressing more and more like I used to when I was that art freak in middle school I'm more like skater punk these days mm-hmm. um yeah and for comfort too like mm-hmm. I don't go out of my way to dress in uncomfortable clothing right for other people right. although if I am performing sometimes I'll definitely put myself in uncomfortable scenarios mm-hmm wearing heeled boots and things yeah okay interesting did you go to like university or anything like that I did I went to a pretty um like white bread university for four full years Mm. to study film and sociology um and I'm surprised that I stuck it out but by third or fourth year I was more exploring you know, I managed a bar. I was um, heavily involved in this theatrical thing, putting on shows. So I do appreciate that I stuck it out, but I am surprised that I went to like a very white um, kind of middle upper class university experience. Mm-hmm. And, but I think as a storyteller, rather than go to like a technical film program, I do appreciate that I went to more of an academic program that really forced me to do deep readings into films and why the stories were being told Mm -hmm. as opposed to just how to turn on a camera. Mm -hmm. How important would you say filmmaking is with psychology and sociology? Because you said you you studied sociology as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think like those things all go hand in hand? Like I'm just thinking of, to be able to be a storyteller, to be able to make films, you have to understand why we are the way we are and why we do the things that we do and also just people and yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think that it would make you a better storyteller if you're, you know about psychology, sociology at an academic level? Or do you think it's... I suppose it could help some people. I think it would distract me because my project is all about trying to understand human nature 
And I think if I had a full grasp on why people do the things they do, it might taint the type of story I'm telling, if that makes any sense. I do find that films, more than anything else, have a huge impact on society and bring people together in a way that maybe the written word and music touch on, but there's something so overwhelmingly visceral about a beautifully made film, especially when it captures that moment and everyone's talking about it. Um, but yeah, I am fascinated by human nature and why we do the things we do. Mm-hmm. And I guess a big part of my projects in general, not just the Henri Fabergé project, are trying to understand the artist's role in that. Because I think as an artist, I don't just do it to entertain or to support myself, obviously. (laughs) But it is sort of a compulsion that I think art has the ability to create meaningful social change. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you personally are more affected by live performance, live theater, or film when you go to or even at home, or does it really depend on what you're watching? I think it depends, but I do think the thing about live performance is that you're, even seeing a movie in the theater is a shared experience with a big group of people, Mm -hmm. and there's something emotionally charged about being in that room that can't be replicated. Even if I'm chatting at the water cooler, so to speak, about Game of Thrones with people Mm -hmm. who are obsessed with that show at the time that doesn't have the same impact as even seeing a strange and moving musical performance at a local bar but with a bunch of people Mm -hmm. like there's something about being in that space with the people who are giving of themselves to share their artistic expression with you and they're right there and you're right there and other people are there and yeah it's hard to even describe like why that's important Mm -hmm. What do you, I'm just trying to think about more of like you, what you find hardest for yourself in terms of an artist, because you did talk about acting a little bit and your challenges with acting. What do you find is the most vulnerable thing for yourself when you're doing film? Is it acting, writing? Is it performing live? Like what do you find the most challenging or most vulnerable I definitely find performing live hard. I find acting in general hard. I I mean, I don't have a lot of training as an actor. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, there's uh, people describe themselves sometimes as an extroverted introvert. And I think people would probably challenge me on describing myself as that way. But I do find it kind of stressful to perform because I'm not necessarily doing it because I think I'm a great performer I just have something to say and there is something it's kind of a burden sometimes you don't necessarily want to get on stage and prostrate yourself in front of a room full of people and hope that they understand why you're doing it and sometimes they don't and sometimes I don't understand why I've done it Mm -hmm. Um, Often I've been ill-prepared, which undercuts the whole reason for doing it. Sometimes I've been overwhelmed and my performance has suffered. Um, 
and people have asked me why I do the things I do in general and sometimes I don't know and in sadder times I guess I've described it as a mental illness like I don't have a choice I have this urge and need to say something and often what I have to say is that you shouldn't listen to me (laughs) (laughs) I mean a big part of my Henri Fabergé project is like a satire about male dominance and the male need to dominate the conversation and be on stage and the whole character is kind of making fun of that and they Mm -hmm. say with satire you should punch up not down that whole project is about punching myself okay i mean i'm not an aristocrat but i've put myself in this position where Henri fabergé is like the ultimate fool who even if he thinks he's woke and is unlearning his privilege, he ultimately can never let go entirely, which is what would be required to share power and privilege across all peoples in the world. Mm -hmm. I would argue that Canada in general is one of the least developed first world countries in the world because we don't have a long cultural history like, say, Sweden might. We were born in the shadows of colonial Britain and the United States and I think society in Canada is fairly safe and conventional and no matter how woke and developed you can argue I mean some pockets absolutely and academically definitely but culturally I find Canada doesn't like to make waves so it's pretty traditional and conventional And, you know, I don't have a lot of experience currently in the modern dating scene. But I think in the way that that's changed, it almost reinforces that male dominance because it's still very much about the male gaze, who he will select. And, yeah, I think there's something, there's like this underlying um, darkness to Canadian society like mm-hmm. no matter how progressive we argue we that we are or a big sticking point for me is that Canadians are so polite I find Canadians pretty rude actually but mm-hmm. then they'll just say sorry after they've been rude mm-hmm. like that's not polite to me mm-hmm. that's just taking the advantage that you want and then saying sorry afterwards mm-hmm. compared to say Americans broadly speaking who will do what they want and not say sorry, or the British who are slightly more repressed than Canadians, I would say, who will not do the rude thing and maybe still apologize for it. Hmm. So yeah, I think the Canadian identity is still pretty muddled and especially now that it's becoming more and more diverse. And I don't think it's unfair to say that Canada is maybe one step behind the United States in revealing its underlying racism and clinging to the patriarchy and clinging to these old institutions of male dominated control over everything. Mm-hmm. I recently, cause that's something that you said that I found interesting was like, I feel the same way about how like doing what you want and then apologizing for it is like the rudest thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. So why not just have an opinion whether or not people will agree is up to them and look at yourself as just 
like that to me is kinder. And I've always thought of myself as like, I'm an opinionated person. I'll say things that maybe will start an argument, but I don't see that as being rude or cruel. I actually see myself as being kind because I'm standing up for myself or someone else or just being an open person. If you're going to say something to me and I don't agree with it, I'm going to say I don't agree with that. Or even in like the workplace, if you are like a manager, for example, and I feel disrespected or whatever, rather than me being passive aggressive about it later or suppressing how I feel to please you, I'm just going to say, hey, this hurt my feelings or I thought this was inappropriate. And I don't see myself as being problematic because of that. But I feel like a lot of people here, and by here I just mean, you know, Canadian people, the culture, is that you would rather just not talk about it and not address it because that is seen as confrontational. Just a conversation is confrontational. Mm -hmm. And I just find that crazy. And I feel like we're we're all different so of course we're not gonna have the same opinion and what about talking about that is an argument it's just a conversation of different opinions i think people just don't like to be the um people don't like to be criticized they don't like to be the target of criticism Mm -hmm. and even bringing it back to art in general i feel like it's our responsibility to tell these stories where we make ourselves more vulnerable as the characters in mm-hmm. these stories. But even then, fema- broadly speaking, female artists have a harder time expressing themselves because there's this notion that they have their place and if you step out of that place, then it's incons- you know it's not within the cultural the cultural mode. Do you just pause it? No. Okay. We're still recording? Yep, absolutely. You're like, I'm just going to edit this part in. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like the old trope that a confident man is preferable to a, um, a nagging woman. You know, like the same descriptors can be applied to men and women, but they are interpreted differently because men have their place in this in this society um i think i kind of lost my train of thought but you know what i'm i know what you're getting yeah 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 um yeah i mean it seems pretty obvious in toronto especially i find there's like a overwhelming number of like beautiful single women we're talking about heterosexual relationships and like that scene Mm -hmm. again and just like a lot of schlubby dudes who don't try very hard yeah so it's like where's the where's the split here if you go to europe like you said Mm -hmm. um maybe the culture is just less about that competition and men and women are just i don't know yeah we can edit this part out Mm. no no (laughs) now i'm just rambling no and I'm not really sure what I'm what I'm getting at like Mm -hmm. I do just find that especially in Toronto it's just such a weird social landscape Mm -hmm. that there's like a disconnect somehow Toronto's very much about hype too Mm -hmm. people are getting opportunities not necessarily based on their 
talents and their dedication. It has a lot to do with who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are just stressed working to make money and then uh, tempering that by spending all of that money going out to expensive restaurants. And someone from British Columbia asked me recently what there is to do in Toronto other than go to restaurants. Right. And I mean, in the summer, there are beautiful outdoor spots and things you can do. And it depends who you are and who you're friends with. But Toronto does embody the rat race more than, well, I guess Vancouver kind of has that vibe too, because mm-hmm. it's also very expensive. And it's increasingly harder just to be an artistic weirdo who's just getting by in the city. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think more and more people are isolated and it's seems increasingly gauche to care about things and to foster a community. I mean, there are people who are community builders and I've tried to be one of those myself. I tried to open what I describe as a community cultural center in the city for three years and it every place we looked at was more and more expensive to the point where we just gave up because Mm -hmm. our business model was not primarily about selling alcohol and making money. It was about fostering community health and bringing people together that don't normally intersect. And there's no model for that unless you've established yourself to the point where you can get government funding. And then that's always precarious. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that also sounds quite, anyways, we're getting really deep and kind of sad, but that's the world. We went, al- we went a lot of different ways. I, I, some of the things I said, I didn't even know what I was saying, but <laughs> I kind of want to, for the end of the podcast, we don't have too much time left, but I want to talk about the film that you've been working on that you just finished two days ago. Sure. And anything that you want to say about that, anything you want to say about its release or what you are planning to do with this now completed project. Hmm. Well, we've submitted to a few film festivals. It is 18 minutes long, which I've been told is kind of long for a short film. What is what is a short film expected to be? Uh, I don't know. What's There's the standard. I mean, I think a lot of five to seven minute films get really? into festivals more than longer. I mean, anything under 45 minutes is considered a short. Right. But programming wise, I understand that there's only so many longer short films they can program also it's sort of a dark existential comedy of sorts which i gather that comedy in a lot of festivals is not really what they're looking for although it is more than a comedy i wouldn't pigeonhole it as just a you know like a wacky comedy Mm -hmm. um so i'm not really sure we have some connections that we'd like to send it out as, as I said, sort of a proof of concept to pitch a series idea that we have. Um, yeah, ultimately, I just am sick of creating work that could just die on a hard drive. So I'm happy to get more of our creative output out into the world. As you saw from our website, it's pretty like thrown together just to give an idea of all of these site-specific performances we did um and as i said i do enjoy the energy that's in the room of a live show but i do think our group 
and the work that we've been creating has the potential to reach more people and to make an impact. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm looking at more conventional ways of leveraging this calling card film, as they call it, to, um, yeah, to see what comes. Mm-hmm. As someone, okay, I'm going to ask you this question sort of to end off the podcast, but like going, doing things like this where you're self-funding, where it takes a lot of time, where it takes a lot of emotion and where it also can like, it can end up being up to others on how successful I guess it is, let's say in terms of making money or how many people it gets to reach. So you continue to do it because it, it feeds you as a person. It makes you happy. It's something that you love doing. For someone who thinks that they want to pursue an art and their goal at the end of the day is to sit, like financially support themselves, what would you say to artists like that? Like, what would you be your advice to them that that is the goal at the end of the day? They do it because they love it, but their end result would be to financially support themselves. I would say be willing to compromise artistically and do it as a job. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't and- do it as a job. If I did, I would have taken a more safe and conventional route, but ultimately... I'm not willing to compromise artistically. I will compromise logistically just to get things done. But I wasn't really interested in pursuing funding with, say, one of the big media conglomerates that ultimately would dictate what the content is um, in exchange for supporting me to create this work. Or the other alternative is, what was I saying? Compromise, what did I say? Doing it as a job. Yeah. I mean, I don't act in other people's stuff. I don't act in commercials. I haven't taken classes to get an agent, to go to auditions. So I don't know if that's a really a great answer. I think if people want to create work to say something, then it shouldn't necessarily be about making money. I mean, you have a podcast that you've just set up in your house. You didn't write a grant to create a podcast and then wait around three years to see if someone would support your idea. You just grabbed the reins to do it and you did it within your capacity to do so, right? Right. And you've made a film and you didn't wait around. I have a kind of a complicated relationship with grant money too because I feel like as a an able-bodied white cis male that has a lot of friends who work in the industry maybe I'm not necessarily the person who should be taking grant money I've ta- I've I've gotten one grant mm-hmm. I wrote a couple other grants which I didn't get probably because they were poorly written mm-hmm. but I kind of just gave up on applying for grants because I felt like if my entire project is about unpacking the power and privilege inherent in being who I am, then taking government funding for that is maybe not the way to go. And also my stuff is kind of weird and hard to explain. Mm -hmm. So it did become a more of a logistical thing that 
maybe I'll just do it myself and the time will be right when someone will give us an opportunity to make this work with a better budget and I can pay all my friends properly and I can uh, bring in some people who are not necessarily just my friends. They're people who are excellent at their craft. Um, I really appreciate Fleabag. I don't know if you've seen Fleabag. Yes, the um, UK show. Yeah, so yeah. she started it just as a one-woman fringe theater show. And uh, allegedly, according to her, just never compromised artistically, which I think there's less of that these days. People it's an excellent are, show. Yeah, it's, I mm-hmm. think it's great. It's a great example of a show that on paper, if you were to go a conventional route, wouldn't get made because it's a bit too edgy for conventional cultural norms. But when people are forced to contend with things that aren't just another of the thing that's already been successful and safe, then it pushes the conversation open into, for instance, the the miscarriage story in that show is like hugely important because people mm-hmm. don't talk about um, loss of of children in in the pregnancy stage. It's like incredibly emotional, and to put it all out there in a way that forces that conversation culturally is like very brave and important mm-hmm. and is not the kind of thing that bell media is going to fund or like not to trash bell media. <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> mm-hmm. in general, I don't see myself as someone who's pursuing like the safe roots. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm like the most <laughs> edgy, interesting <laughs> artist, but we have something that we want to say and we're figuring it out and we don't want the person with the money to dangle it in exchange for us changing such and such. And our live shows were incredibly distressing. Sometimes we had a, we had a stillborn baby scene in our Heligland series in the room and our incredible props person had made this beautiful and disturbing and upsetting corpse that was uh, in the room and was addressed by the matriarch of the community and, a really powerful and profound way that on paper would just be awful mm-hmm. and people I don't think would be I mean we did push we pushed a lot of things a lot of stories and conversations in those shows that I'm sure some people thought we went maybe a bit too far but mm-hmm. we felt that it was important to examine the absurdity of the human experience in real time in a room full of people which was immersive to the point where you couldn't really turn away unless you left the room, which Mm -hmm. some people did Mm -hmm. on certain occasions. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's okay to make mistakes? Like on that note, do you think it's okay to mistakes and make mistakes and have you ever regretted doing something that you later said, maybe that was too much or like Um, hurt someone, whatever. Yeah. I would only regret being overwhelmed and maybe not being, um, I consider myself a pretty like genuinely nice and considerate person, but I definitely put my collaborators in some situations where I was very stressed out. They were very stressed out. And just the way we talked to each other was probably cathartic in a way that was not the most healthy and we're still friends, but it, it is hard to do something ambitious with very little money and support 
in like a crunch. Like all of our live shows were insane. We did full productions once. We never did these shows again. One a month. So as soon as the show was over, we would start writing the next episode based on what had happened, who was available. And it was overly ambitious, but we were all for it until we weren't. Mm -hmm. And there were definitely some conversations that were challenging. But I think, um, I guess the biggest thing to say about all the shows is that I, I was never satisfied to just take the first show we did, refine it over two years like you would a play and do it again we were always pushing to the next thing, which is insane for most people. Most people try to encapsulate the thing and refine it and make it a product and make that have some sort of financial viability and tour that show or get it put on in a big, a bigger theatrical space. Um, but we were all about the storytelling and the stories weren't stopping and so we just kept chasing these stories. And even now I have probably 30 high quality film scenes. I wouldn't say they're full short films, but our collaborator, Henry Sansom, who has a red camera and is an incredible DP and is ready for any situation would come out and we would just film and film and edit these scenes to be shown in the live setting. And some of them are versions of them are available on my website but they haven't been fully realized in the way that we wanted to have sort of a choose your own adventure storytelling platform where you could search through these different chapters and they were all kind of part of a larger thing and I wouldn't say that I regret that though because I wasn't satisfied with what it meant to be a touring musician or a theater producer um, and that journey just took me all over the place to game design and um, this ambitious idea to open a big venue and I kind of appreciate that I wasn't willing to just settle and be like a musician that only puts up music and tours and for me it was more about the connection with the audience about why we were telling these stories which I think I'm only just figuring out now after like 10 years. <laughs> okay. Amazing. Uh, we just like, we're at 59 minutes, 32 seconds. So we are done our episode. No, no we got 20 seconds. Left. We, we do have some seconds. Um, I want to say thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing. I hope that you got to say things that you thought were important. I mean, we mostly just trashed Toronto. We did. We did do a lot of, trash talking toronto um I but i love okay. the people in toronto no, i would say that toronto people. is not this it's weird toronto has a different vibe than the people that are in it right i think it's being dominated a lot by hype and money at the moment mm -hmm. but there are incredible people who are just isolated in a way yeah there needs to be a unifying community activation to bring mm -hmm. people together to save what I think is dying, which is mm -hmm. just open community. Right. Yeah. And that's up to like, that's, it's funny because the people make the place, but at the same time, place can make the people. 
is kind of what we're saying because there are awesome people here that don't agree with the way that things are going. Of course. So, but that's, yeah, that's life. Weird. I don't know. It's a lot to think about. Um, but yes, I want to say thank you. If you want to, I mean, I hope everyone made it to the end of the podcast. This is... Oh no, people turned off a while ago. <laughs> um, you're, I think you're going to be the first or the last... You are the last guest for the one year of 23T. You are the last guest. I will be doing my one year anniversary um, interview. I'm, I have a friend interviewing me for like technically the last episode, but you are the last guest, which I just realized. I'm honored. Thank you for coming. I hope I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> no, that's okay. We do, you know, just... The conversation is what the conversation is. And if we don't make any sense, that's also okay. Because that's Perfect. a conversation. Didn't and I do that sense. all the time. <laughs> and sometimes I don't know what to ask. And I just, you know. But hopefully I ask some okay questions. And hopefully I answer them. <laughs> okay. And that is the uh, end of the podcast. I hope you guys made it to the end, like I said. And we're celebrating basically a year of this. And uh, we're going to keep growing with it and see where it ends up next year at this time hopefully it's even bigger and met even more people and had more stories to share so yeah that's it okay bye-bye it's psychological hustle i gotta battle these comments like the king and the muscle they keep on bursting my balls and now every morning when i wake up on me in the huddle so batter up batter up you know i'm hitting the double you know i'm running the I know I gotta embrace it Like a girl without a top Just kinda sitting on your lap Boy, what you do? Girl, I rap, I rap nasty Maybe one day I'll say chase to a paparazzi It's psychological hustle Be prepared for anything and everything It'll tear you down, it'll tear you down It's psychological hustle Psychological hustle Psychological hustle